there's nothing too uh, um, exotic, at, I'd say, at this point. You know, uh, um, eat right. You might think about uh, fasting, uh, you know, eat as little red meat as, as, as you can, exercise, don't smoke. There's all those things. Um, what I like to say is that if you want to live to be a healthy 80 or 85 years old, you need to do all these things, all the things that you're mother probably told you to do a long, long time ago. If you want to live to be a, a healthy 100-year-old, then you probably either either need good genes, you either need parents that live to be 100 years old, or you need some medical assistance. And it's that medical assistance that a lot of us are working on right now. And I think it's quite plausible that we're on the precipice of, of knowing things that we can do that will keep us healthy another decade or two. I, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be living 500 years any time soon, but I am quite optimistic that we might be living, that 100 years old and 90 plus years of health are something that's, that, that's quite close to the, to the horizon at this point. Hi everyone, welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. On the show today, we have the award-winning aging researcher, Dr. Stephen Osted. Stay tuned to learn everything you need to know about why we age and what we can do about it. Let's jump right in. Here's Heather and Stephen. Dr. Osted, welcome to Collective Insights. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Can you can you just tell me, you know, if there were a few things you could distill aging down to, what is it? What is aging? Well, aging is uh, sort of a decline in physical function that happens uh, over time. And it's, it's a very interesting biological mystery, actually, to me. One of the reasons I got into it is I thought there's no law of physics that necessarily dictates that things have to age. But when you look around, it's not just humans that age. Our pets age, trees age. Lots of things age. So I got very curious as to what's what's behind that puzzle. Why is this so common? It's almost ubiquitous. And uh, and, and for humans, it's becoming uh, an inescapable fact of our existence in the 21st century. Our species has been around for at least 300,000 years, and never in that time have people lived anywhere close to as long as they do now. So what that means is that we're interest, entering a whole new environment, an environment where people older than people have ever lived are now having to deal with the external world. And it's, uh, at one in, in one case, it's, it's kind of a frightening prospect, but in another, it's also an exciting prospect. So you said almost ubiquitous. Who who escapes this? <laughs> there are a handful of animals that seem to escape aging. One of them is Hydra, which is a one of the animals that I study, which are these tiny freshwater um, organisms that look kind of like a sea anemone. They're a stalk with a bunch of tentacles. And we don't know for sure that they don't age. But for as long as anyone's had the patience to follow individual hydra, they don't appear to age. And that makes them incredibly unusual, but also incredibly interesting, of course. And then you also mentioned that people are living longer than ever before. Now, my understanding is that there are these blue zones 
it across the, the world where there are cultures where people have lived into their hundreds and pretty regularly. So is it just that Western culture, in Western culture, we're living longer than ever before? Or is that actually true? Like, did me, is it maybe incorrect that these Blue Zone people live so long and have for generations? Yeah, you have to be very careful here because uh, people are so desperately interested in aging and long life and so desperate to have a long, healthy life that they're particularly gullible about swallowing stories of exceptional longevity in other parts of the world. And in the 1970s, there was actually a Harvard professor who was uh, hired by the National Geographic to go around the world and visit some of the more famous of these zones. There was one in South America, there was another one uh, in the Caucasus Mountains, and there was another one uh, between where uh, Afghanistan and uh, uh, Pakistan are today in the Karakoram Mountains. Those turned out to all be bogus. Uh, but there we're talking about stories of people living 120, 130, 150, 160 years. Now, there are no doubt places in the world where people live longer than most of us. They really don't live longer than the longest lives of us, but it's more common. One of the places is Okinawa. Uh, but Anytime you do this, you have to be very, very careful about get the accuracy of your information. And For instance, one of the areas that's been called a, a blue zone is an area of Costa Rica. And I've been to that area of Costa Rica. There doesn't seem to be anything exceptional about that area to me. And when I went to the United Nations information on longevity in that area, I found that it looked pretty much like the rest of the uh, sort of semi-developed world, except at age 100, suddenly life expectancy jumped from about two years to about 12 years. So to me, that meant you have to be careful about birth records. Birth records 100 years ago in the U.S. were not very good. My guess is they're not very good in Costa Rica as well. So there are some of these places, uh, but they're not places where people live longer than the longest live people elsewhere. They're just places where more people live longer. And, of course, we want to know uh, why they do that, how they do that, with, whether, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's genetics, whether most likely it's a combination of things. And so the longest lived person ever, how old is it possible for someone to get? So far, the oldest person that we have very good records on is 122 and a half years old. Um, and, and here's one way to, to, to um, allow your listeners to be skeptical in an informed sense. In all of the areas that turned out to be bogus, the longest live people were all men. And we know from lots and lots and lots of experience that men are not as long-lived as women. When you get to 110 years old, you have about nine women alive for every man. And if you take the longest live 10 people ever that we know about, every single one of them is a woman. Um, so I have a particular interest in, in, in why that exists, because, you know, men would like to live as long as women. Yeah, can you speak to that? What's the difference? Why do you think it is that women live longer? Well, it's really kind of a mystery. We have some hypotheses about it, but we don't have any real solid answers. One of the possibilities is there's something about male hormones that actually uh, are damaging. And 
the evidence for that in people is that there are several studies of uh, of eunuchs of people who for religious reasons or political reasons were castrated as young men and even though the evidence is a, a little bit spongy the differences in longevity are absolutely remarkable there's two studies one from the united states and one from korea that showed a 15 to 20 year longer life for men that were castrated now that's a remarkable difference. I don't see anyone and, else signing up for the double blind. No, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see people signing up for that. It's not a treatment that probably a lot of people. But it does suggest that hormones may be at the at the yeah. at the root of it. But another possibility is uh, is our sex chromosomes. So women have two X chromosomes and men have an X and a Y chromosome. And what that means is that women have two chances to uh, uh, overcome one bad gene. So if they have a bad gene on one of their X chromosomes, they probably will have a normal gene on the other chromosome. Men don't have that uh, backup. If they have a bad gene on an X chromosome, they only have one of them. And there are certain things that we know of, like color blindness, that are due to bad genes on the X chromosome. Hemophilia is that. So it may be that there are uh, detrimental genes on the X chromosomes that make men particularly prone to uh, live shorter lives. Interesting. We don't so know that's some case. redundancy maybe that's, that's helpful. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is that in women, one of those X chromosomes is turned off in every cell and it's random. So, um, so if you looked at all your white blood cells, half of them would have one of your X chromosomes turned off and the other one would have the other one. But over time, as women get older, it seems like one or the other of those X chromosomes survives better, suggesting that maybe what's happening is that even on, the, on a cellular level within your liver or your lung or something, over time, your body is selecting the better of the two X chromosomes to you know, to help you uh, as you age. Interesting. And then what telomeres are another thing that come up a lot in the subject of aging. Can you tell us how that fits into this conversation? Yes. And, and, and I have to say telomeres uh, in the aging field are a little bit passe, but let me explain what they are and why they came up and why we're not focused on them quite as much as we used to be. So for years and years and years, it was thought that uh, if you took cells out of the body, if you took skin cells or, or, or virtually any cell, lung cells, put them in a dish that they would divide forever. And that's because we had cells that did that. It turned out those cells were cancer cells. If you take normal cells out of the body and you put them in a dish, they divide a certain amount of times and then they stop. They come to this absolute stop. And for years, it, it was wondered what is how do they know how many times they've divided how do they know when to stop what's the cellular clock and so in the late 90s people decided that the cellular clock was were telomeres so telomeres are are little uh, are bits of of dna they're a short sequence of six DNA letters that's repeated again and again and again hundreds or thousands of times at the end of your chromosomes. And they form a kind of protective cap. If, you're, if your cells see uh, naked chromosome ends, your cells uh, interpret that as being danger to that cell and the cell will kill itself. And one of the things that prevents that is telomeres. 
But telomeres have this inherent property that every time a cell divides, just because of the mechanics of the way that DNA replication works, they get a little bit shorter. And so the idea was that maybe the shortening of the telomeres was a cellular clock that would cause cells to stop dividing at a certain point. And in fact, that turned out to be true because uh, in about the year 2000, it was d discovered that if you turned on this enzyme that your cells have called telomerase, and which will basically uh, lengthen your telomeres again, that you could prevent the cells from stopping dividing. So that, aha, here's the cellular clock right here. And there was a huge, a huge surge of interest in telomeres and telomerase. Now, there still is a lot of interest in that. And that's because we think definitely that telomere biology is intimately involved with cancer. We're not so sure how intimately involved with aging it is. And, and the reason is that our organs that seem to be most prone to aging, our brain, our heart, our muscles, are, contain cells that don't divide a lot. You know, we, we, you have pretty much all the brain cells by the time you're five years old that you will ever have. And the same with heart cells and the same with muscle cells. So as a consequence, uh, sort of interest has is, is kind of moved on. Now, it may be that telomeres are still telling us something because one of the things it turns out that they're very, very uh, prone to damage by things that we know are involved in aging like free radicals. And it may be that uh, shortening due to free radical damage is, is, is telling us something. It's kind of like a thermometer telling us the temperature, maybe telling us something. But really, there seem to be much better clocks, if you will, much better things to tell us about our biological age at this point. Like what? Uh, telomeres. Well, there's a couple of things that, that have come out recently. There are these, what's called the DNA methylation clock. Now, in, in introductory biology, we're, we, we're taught to think of DNA as this long ladder of a succession of letters, and the sequence of these letters is the DNA code. And that's all true, but it's incomplete, because there are these uh, small chemicals that attach to our DNA and actually affect whether uh, genes are turned off or on. And one of the kinds of chemicals is called a methyl group. And when DNA has a methyl group attached to it, it's called DNA methylation. Turns out that the pattern of DNA methylation looks like it's telling us a great deal about our not only our calendar age, but our biological age. And this is something that's just come out in the last four or five years. But the more we learn about it, the better clock it seems to become. So this is like histone modification. where Except it's DNA. Except it's DNA. It's ah, not histone. Right at the... Okay. At the CG. Is that where this is typically yeah, happening? CPG. Yeah, CPG, that's exactly where it happens. And what it affects, of course, is it affects the way that DNA coils and the way that that uh, genes can get turned on as they need to be, DNA needs to be uncoiled there. And this is the essence of epigenetic modification, right? Exactly, okay. exactly. So, so that's one of the better clocks. There's actually another one that just came out. The thing that's so compelling about the DNA methylation clock is that it's been around long enough now that people have looked at it 
not only in multiple populations of people, but in multiple populations of various animals. And it seems to be a fairly general thing across different species, as well as just in human populations. Now, a recent study came out that, that looked at blood proteins. Now, you know, when you go to the doctor and, and, and get your blood drawn and they do a chemical anal analysis, they analyze a couple of dozen chemicals in your blood. But blood is this incredibly rich stew of chemicals. There are thousands of proteins in your blood, most of them, you know, so rare that they're hard to detect. But we've gotten better and better and better technology for detecting them. And we've also gotten uh, better and better ways to analyze this, you know, thousands of, of, of proteins. And recent work suggests that mixtures of proteins in your blood, which ultimately come from the cells of your body. You know, your blood courses through your body, picks up things from all your organs. Some of these protein signatures also seem to be telling us a great deal about biological age. So what so, sort of protein signature do you... Do you have uh, these are these, it's a wide variety. I mean, it's a, over a thousand proteins. And so is there some a test? Of, we have no idea what what they do. Are you familiar uh, with a test that you can do to, that kind of analyzes these different ratios of proteins and gives you a sense of your your biological age? This this is way too new for that. Ah, uh, that okay. will that will come. So we'll be on the lookout. That will come with time. This is this this is just this is f fresh out of the lab. This is not ready for uh, uh, for commercial uh, use at this point. But my guess is uh, that it will be fairly quickly will be uh, available for commercial use. Okay, so what we would do is just like if you're going to the doctor, and I have a clinic and see patients there, so I run CBCs and CMPs, the complete metabolic panels and complete blood counts and hormone levels and thyroid levels, so we might just be able to add this to our testing and say, all right, what are the protein ratios in your blood, the mix of all of these metabolic processes in all of your organs that get shunted back to the blood for... And do we think that they're being used by organs? Like, is this is this fresh material, fresh protein material? Is it like metabolic waste? Do we have a sense of where it's coming from or where it's going? Right now, it's 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 too complex to say. I mean, if 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 you're looking at three thousand proteins in your blood and you're looking at these combinations, now you know one of the things that we needed to be able to do this is we need the instrumentation to do it, which yeah. that's gotten better and better and better. But the other thing that we needed is the analytic capacity. And actually, these kinds of, of, of signatures have been developed by machine learning techniques. So this is something that's going to, it's going to be a while before it's generally available to the public, but, but you have the essence of it exactly right. The other thing that we know both about the epigenetic clock and this clock is it seems to be able to be uh, changed by lifestyle changes. So it could be that this is a way to you know, let's take an example of something that we know is beneficial, which is exercise. You know, exercise has multiple benefits, not just for your heart and your muscle and your lungs, but for your brain, for pretty much everything. There's no arguing for that. I call it the best deal in medicine. You're absolutely right about that. But here's what we don't know about exercise. We don't really know what the best form of exercise mm. is. And my guess is that the best form of exercise will turn out to be different for different people, depending on their history, their genetic background and all. And what this, these techniques give us is a possibility that we'll be able to go to the 
to, to the doctor and get prescribed exercise, which doctors do anyway and almost generally ignored. But they'll say, no, 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 we want you to not just do uh, exercise. We want you to do this kind of exercise for this long, this many days a week. And they'll know from that from for your genome, that's right. Or even if they don't know from your genome, they can say, come back in two months and we'll test your blood again. And we'll see if it looks any, any How different. How you responded. Any kind of like, yeah, you know, change exactly. your diet and let's see what happens to your cholesterol or get on the statins and let's see what happens to your cholesterol. We'll be able to get that feedback from the lab testing. Absolutely. Exactly. How exciting. So this is, I mean, this is a really exciting time in, in the biology of aging because we're now using all the latest technology to, to, to address these old questions. So both of the things that you just mentioned, both methylation and then these protein ratios are things that we consume, right? Like we can consume methyl donors. We can consume things that have this carbon and three hydrogen. We can consume protein. Um, so it, does diet play a role in here? When I was back in medical school, I remember the only thing associated with slightly longer lifespan was fasting. Is that still the case? Is that still true eight years later? Or have we just changed um, our minds? No, absolutely. Diet is a critical component. And diet like exercise, probably there are probably different optimal diets for different people. And maybe uh, at different points in their life. And, and maybe at different points in their life. And it may be, I mean, you mentioned fasting. And when I got into aging research about 30 years ago, the only way that we knew to make animals live longer or age more slowly was by reducing their food intake. And that, and for, a, for 70 years, that was the only way that we knew to do it. And we always assumed that it was the absolute amount of food that counted. Now that's being challenged because one of the things, and I've done a lot of this work in, in mice and other animals, one of the things you know is that your animals that are being fed less, they're, they're very hungry all the time. So when you go in to feed them, they eat all their food in a half an hour. Whereas the other animals that are, that are being fed ad lib, they sort of nibble at their food all day. So one of the things that we didn't really think about at the time, well, maybe it's the timing of their feeding that matters. Because if you mm. eat all of your food in 30 minutes, that means you're fasting for 23 and a half hours a day. And recent work is, is really quite provocative that the timing of food intake may be as important as the total amount of food that you eat. And then you add to that potentially composition of food, depending on your genome. And we're looking at a, a, a sort of brave new world of, of, of nutritional health, I would say. And do you have a sense if there is a diet that's more helpful for, for aging? Well, you know, so here, here's where we come up against the wall, and the wall is that uh, humans are absolutely the worst uh, subject that you could have to study diet. <laughs> I mean, you know, we still don't know whether high fat or uh, diet is, is good for you or not, or is better than high carbohydrate diet. Now, I could tell you in excruciating detail what the best diet for a mouse is, because I can put a bunch of mice in cages and have them all eat the same thing for their entire lives and look at their health. But for people, they're, they're just a, an incredibly difficult animal to study because, first of all, they don't do what you tell them. Uh, secondly, they have all kinds of uh, other things going on in their life, what they, what they drink, what they may or may not smoke, how much they exercise, what kind of diseases they're um, exposed to. And 
And then on top of that, they will not tell you the truth about what they're eating. So you put all these things together, and understanding human nutrition is in a very crude state, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's impossible. To, the science is hard. It's the people are hard. <laughs> <laughs> They're terrible subjects. So They're terrible, yeah. So tell me about the animal research that you do, because what we're doing is kind of bridging the gap, right? Like you, we make some assumptions that humans are going to behave somewhat different, somewhat the same, excuse me, as the animals that you've done some research on. Is that correct? It's like, can you make that correlation sometimes, or is it difficult to do? Or what's the, where do you marry the two? Where do you take the information you get from your animals and apply it to humans. So here's the way I think about it, is that um, there are certain very general features of biology that animals share, and then each species also has its own unique features. And so a person from uh, uh, landing here from Mars would be able to look at a young dog and an old dog, or a young a uh, 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 mouse or old mouse or a young horse or an old horse and tell you the difference between them. You know, there's certain things, there's, there's cataracts, there's hair grain, there's increases in cancer that seem to occur in virtually every species that we look at. Now, the, the closer you get to humans in terms of evolutionary history for mammals, the more similar things get. But we still have our own unique properties, and so we can learn from experimental animals. We can learn some important lessons about aging, but whether those are going to carry through to humans or not is something that we kind of have to figure out uh, one at a time. With these but terrible subjects. Because we're the terrible subjects, and unless, and, and you know, I used, I used to say to my students, I used to complain about what terrible subjects uh, humans were for scientific research, and invariably they said, well, we should just do this on prisoners. And I go, well, you know, there's certain <laughs> problems uh, with that. Um, so what about the I ethics think, of doing the research on animals? How do you feel about that? Well, I... I that's a, that's a good question because I'm a, I'm a serious animal lover. I have six dogs and three cats, and I've had pets my whole life, and I absolutely love animals. But if you think about it, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out how to improve and prolong the health of animals. And so uh, it's not just the human benefits that could come out of this research. It's, it's, it's the animal benefits as well. Now, sometimes you have to sacrifice animals in your research and I don't I don't like doing that and I try to do it as little as possible but on the other hand it's one of these things you know veterinary medicine has advanced because veterinarians have had to sacrifice animals to learn certain things and and it's certainly better than sacrificing people uh, to learn them, but I think we what we need to do in the research community is maintain our respect for the animals uh, that we work on. One of the my, one of my favorite uh, of, of books is by uh, neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky, and it was dedicated to the rats that mm. gave their lives in his research. And I thought that's a fantastic thing uh, for him to think about doing. Mm-hmm. So, on the subject of animals, can you tell us about the story of how you got to where you are in your Uh, career? 
Sure. Um, yeah, so I have a pretty unusual background. I, I, I wasn't, when I was in college, I was actually an English major, and I have a degree in English, and what I wanted to do with my degree in English is I wanted to write the great American novel. Um, so when I got out of college, I, I, I had a succession of, of different jobs because I thought, well, if I'm going to write the great American novel, I need to have some great American experiences. And so uh, I, you know, I was, a, I, I hustled pool for a living. I drove a taxi for a living. I was a reporter for a living. I did a whole bunch of things while I was waiting for uh, inspiration to strike me and, and, and produce this great American novel. Now, since you've never heard of any novels that I've written, you know how that worked out. But ultimately what happened was that uh, I, I ended up, one of my odd jobs was I was training uh, large cats for the movie business in Hollywood. And in the course of doing that, that's a kind of a dangerous job. I got yeah. pretty seriously injured and I had some time in the hospital to contemplate my future. And I thought, I really like animals. I really like trying to understand animal behavior. Instead of doing this, this big cat training where I'm liable to have a very brief career, maybe I should go study animals um, in the wild. And so I decided I needed to learn some science and I needed to go to graduate school. And so I got a graduate, a PhD in, in animal behavior, which is still a long way from aging. But I was doing a project in South America, in Venezuela, on some opossums, having nothing to do with aging. But I, in the course of this project, I had to recapture individual opossums every month. And in doing that, I discovered that they aged as quickly as mice did. I'd catch an opossum looking fine fettle, and I'd catch it six months later, actually even three months later, would have cataracts, I'd be parasite-ridden, and had all kinds of muscle loss, have arthritis. And that observation struck me so deeply that by the time I published the original work that I was working on, I completely lost interest in it because I got interested in, well, why do opossums age so quickly? And cats that are kind of the same size and look a little bit like them uh, can live four or five or six times as long. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, this is a really interesting puzzle. Why, if, if animals are, can almost be defined by their capacity to repair themselves if they're wounded or all, why would they age in the first place? Why wouldn't, you know, it's ultimately it's the, f it's the failure of repair. Your heart gets damaged, it doesn't completely repair. Mm -hmm. Your brain gets damaged, it doesn't completely repair. So this question became so fascinating to me that it's, that, that it's kept my interest for the last 30 years. So you did write a book. I did. I mean, in fact, I'm working on a second book oh, now. Oh, good. And I'm happy to hear that. So you yeah. wrote a book called Why We Age, What Science is Discovering About the Body's Journey Through Life. So tell me about that process. You've, you've published extensively. So it's, it's not like you ever gave up on writing the great American novel. Um, it just, it morphed, it sounds like. So tell me a little bit about what you've published and the process of doing that. And, and, um, and you, you also, I mean, you write extensively in newspaper columns and natural history magazines, scientific American. I mean, you're, you're quite prolific. Um, tell me more about sharing this. Well, I've all. You're right. I mean, uh, you know, I want. I wanted to write. I always wanted to write. And one of the things that scientists don't realize is they're by their very nature 
professional writers. And I, I actually think a great deal of, of the success that people have in science has to do with their ability to communicate clearly, even to other scientists. But for me, I've always liked to communicate to people who are not scientists. Maybe it's because I was an English major for, for, for all those years, and I was around people in the arts, and, and people in the arts had a very difficult time to, uh, uh, understanding what scientists were up to. So even when I was in graduate school, I started writing things for Natural History Magazine, National Wildlife, and all, because I liked to explain what I was learning to, to, to the public at large. And that stayed with me. And, you know, my, my, my first book, uh, Why We Age, really came out of an article that I wrote for Natural History magazine. And I got contacted by a publisher and an agent and I, uh, about turning it into a whole book. And, uh, and, you know, books can be kind of um, intimidating to think about. But if you really think about it in small pieces... I'm going to work on this chapter, and I've written lots of chapters for scientific journals, uh, and now I've finished this chapter, I'm going to move to the next one. Uh, it turns out that it's a very enjoyable process to me, trying to figure out the best way to explain some complicated process uh, to people at large. And I even, I, I have to say that the, the ultimate uh, success, I think, in, in, in my writing careers, I wrote a book with my wife. Um, now, my wife is a veterinarian, and that's a book of animal stories. But the fact is, we got through that book, and we're still married. And <laughs> that, uh, I consider that almost the apex of my uh, writing career. Yeah, maybe we should be asking you about marital <laughs> advice instead of aging <laughs> advice. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I... I just I have this compulsion to make people understand science, and so I've kept doing newspaper columns. And but the other thing is, it puts me in touch with a broader community. And one of the things I like the most about doing newspaper columns is the letters that I get back from people. And let me just tell you a story about uh, about one of these. I was uh, walking around uh, uh, the green in Lexington, Massachusetts with a friend of mine who's a journalist, and we, we came upon uh, a, a plaque, a monument to this person uh, who had uh, died not long after the Revolutionary War. And he had been, in the early days of the Revolutionary War, he had... Uh, he had been abandoned eight times. He had been shot twice, left for dead on the battlefield, and he recovered. And this monument to him was because he was 88 years old when this happened to him. And I wrote an article about this, and I got a letter from somebody who, it was her great, great, great grandfather, and then she could tell me story. I mean, this is a robust person, right? Yeah. She told me stories about her grand. Uh, mother and father on the prairie, uh, moving west and how long they lived and the hardships they did. And uh, it, it just puts you in touch with a broader public in a way that, uh, uh, that I find extremely satisfying. Yeah, most scientists that are spending a lot of time in the lab and in their head, they don't get that interaction with people. Right, and I and I, I don't re I really enjoy it because I do spend, uh, I do spend a lot of time in my head, and this is some time to get into other people's heads, and it's 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 like going on a little trip somewhere. I I really enjoy that. How fun! So, how do you, how? First of all, what's in the next book? What can we look for in the next book? 
So the next book is called Methuselah's Zoo, The Natural History of Exceptional Longevity. And, and what I'm doing in that book is I'm talking about all of the different kinds of animals we know that live exceptional long lives. One of the animals I've been researching for the past few years is a clam that lives over 500 years. Wow. But there are there are other there are amphibians that live more than a century, fish that live several hundred years, sharks that live over 300 years. I'm putting all of this together and trying to make coherent sense. And the last the last chapter is about humans with exceptional uh, longevity. So it's trying to put the notion of exceptional longevity in some sort of natural framework. And are there applications? Are there things? Are there things we can do, choices we can make at this point to live longer? Well, there are. There are lots of things we can do, but no, there's nothing... There's nothing too uh, um, exotic, I'd say, at this point. You know, uh, um, eat right. You might think about uh, fasting. Uh, you know, eat as little red meat as, as, as you can. Exercise. Don't smoke. There's all those things. Um, what I like to say is that if you want to live to be a healthy 80 or 85 years old, you need to do all these things, all the things that your mother probably told you to do a long, long time ago. If you want to live to be a, a healthy 100-year-old, then you probably either either need good genes, you either need parents that live to be 100 years old, or you need some medical assistance. And it's that medical assistance that a lot of us are working on right now. And I think it's quite plausible that we're on the precipice of, of knowing things that we can do that will keep us healthy another decade or two. I, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be living 500 years any time soon, but I am quite optimistic that we might be living, that 100 years old and 90 plus years of health are something that's, that, that's quite close to the to the horizon at this point so in like the generation maybe the millennial generation right yeah you, exactly the ones if you were born in the year two that there's actually a a, a paper uh by demographers who calculate who extrapolated current trends and figured if you were born in the year 2000 or later your life expectancy uh was about 100 years now that that was a pretty controversial paper but uh, a very provocative one and ones that my students who now my students all were pretty much born in 2000 yeah. or afterwards I always point out to them this is your century you know and then I apologize for the, for for leaving it to them in the state that we are but uh, I right. said it's up to you to it's up to you to make things to make things better and you have the 21st century to do it in well yeah i guess that's a big factor in aging that we haven't even considered right as if the environment will sustain us exactly exactly and there are things going on now that are really spooky the fires in australia there's yeah. the sort of there's the immediate loss for that but these people that are breathing all all this smoke uh that's gonna have long-term consequences and of course california it seems like every summer now is undergoing horrific fires and so yeah there's a, there's a lot of things 
to worry about. But uh, you know, we've always faced challenges as as people, and uh, I guess we're not going to ever escape those challenges. They're right. just going to change their nature. Hopefully, we're just little like cockroaches. We can we can adapt and get through it. Be resilient. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have. I've, I've, I'm not pessimistic about humans surviving as a species, because I think we will. I am a little bit pessimistic about our way of life as we currently think about it, uh, surviving, you know, climate change and population increases and all that. But humans will, they will ultimately figure, figure things out. So how, so the average lifespan, and again, this is controversial, but if you're born in 2000, your average lifespan would be 100. So somebody born in 2000, what do you think the longest they could live is? Do you think that that, you said 122 and a half is the longest lived person we know of. Do you think that some of this generation could potentially live to be 150? Like, do you think we can expand there as well? Or do you think the average will just shift? I certainly hope so, because I have a billion dollar wager on this. Oh, uh, say more. Yeah, yeah so... Um, I have a billion dollar wager with with a demographer about when the first 150 year old will be alive. And for and the way this occurred is that I was I was quoted in the New York Times in 2000 uh, as saying I thought the first 150 year old was already alive the first person to be 150 years old. And so my friend Jay Olshansky uh, called me, says, you don't really believe that? And I said, yes, I do, indeed. And we ended up making a bet on it. And the, the, the nature of the bet is this, that we each put 100, and we didn't just put a half a billion dollars uh, uh, aside, because uh, we're both academics, and half a billion dollars, you know, that's a couple of years pay for yeah, me. Yeah, I was going to say, you must be in the right business. <laughs> so what we did is we put a, each put $150 into a... Uh, uh, an investment account and uh, uh, made an agreement that in the year 2150, uh, if the first 150, if there was a single 150 year old person who was mentally intact, uh, then in the best case scenario, I would get all the accumulated money. In the more likely scenario, my descendants would get it. And if not, then his descendants would uh, get the money. And we calculated that that $300 investment in the year 2000 and 2150 at the historical rate of growth in the stock market would be about a half a billion dollars. And then at the urging of a journalist in 2016, we doubled the bet. And so now it's just pretty much an even $1 billion. And I have to say uh, that, uh, that my friend Jay Olshansky has invested this money so that it's doing actually quite a bit better uh, than the stock market at this point. <laughs> so I, I continually uh, reinforce with my children to be paying attention to this. So, but again, only one person, for me to win the bet, only one person has to live that long. So some... Japanese woman somewhere, I hope, will uh, uh, allow me to win my bet. And they keep really good birth records, right? And and they do, and 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 their longevity has been increasing rapidly. And uh, unlike a lot of the rest of the developed world, at least in the women, it seems to be uh, continuing to increase. So. Now, the reason we picked 150, and it's interesting that you would come up with that number, is that given that the oldest person that we know of to date was 122, both Jay and I felt that unless there were 
medical advances to actually slow the rate of aging, that nobody was going to get to 150 because we got better at preventing cancer, preventing heart disease, because if you do that, then these other diseases crop up, that we thought that it would really take some kind of advance to slow the rate at which we age. And the the difference in our in our prediction is simply I have a I'm more optimistic about the rate of scientific progress uh, than he is. He he we absolutely agree that you're not going to get a 150 year old with with better diets or with with uh, more uh, finely tuned exercise regimes, but it's going to take uh, an advance to slow aging. But there we're we're making progress along so many fronts on that. Uh, I'm firmly convinced that something will crop up. So it sounds like we have a pretty good grasp on what we can do to slow aging potentially to a point, but really increasing lifespan is where it's going to take a, a pretty significant technological or scientific advancement. I think so. Is that uh, and, a correct and summary? I, I think that's a, a good summary, and the, and the reason that I'm so optimistic about it is we in animals, we can do this dozens and dozens of ways. We're no longer stuck with just feeding them less. There's, there's, there's drugs, there's genetic manipulations, all kinds of ways. A lot of that is going to turn out to be irrelevant to people for one reason or another, but there are so many things going on that I'm, I'm really quite convinced that something something is going to be relevant to can people. Can you talk through some of those? Like, What are the drugs that are coming up? Metformin, well, rapamycin, are there... Yes, yes. Can you speak to those and how they work? I mean, I'm sure. vaguely familiar with them. Metformin, sure. of course, is a, is a diabetes drug that, you know, uh, lots and lots of people are on. But I don't really know the technicalities of how that works for anti-aging. Can you speak so, to the mechanism? Well, I, I wish I could, but the mechanism turns out to be extremely complicated. It's not, you know, some drugs are very uh, precisely uh, targeted to specific molecules. Metformin is not one of those. Metformin is one of those that's targeted to multiple places. What makes it interesting, two things make it particularly interesting. One is that every place that we know that it seems to be targeted is a place in the cell that had prior interest because we think it's important in aging. And the really interesting thing about metformin is that the animal work for metformin is not all that impressive. That is, it has some healthful effects in animals, but not all that much. But the human data looks so good. You know, it's been the diabetes choice, a drug of choice for almost 60 years. So we have lots and lots and lots of human data on it. And recently there's been some analyses that show that people on metformin, older people on metformin, because they have diabetes, are actually living longer than non-diabetics. And so that's, and then there's been a whole bunch of stuff in the literature making it appear like metformin may uh, be good at protecting us against cancer. It may be good at protecting against Alzheimer's disease. It may be good at protecting against heart disease. And so um, it may be that we already have drugs that are very, very uh, promising. Now, the rapamycin, there are very few human data on it. Rapamycin, of course, is used in human medicine, but it's typically only used uh, on people who are really quite ill. They've had a kidney transplant. They've had a, a you know coronary artery uh, stent placed or something. But in animals, in mice, Rapamycin does this incredible amount. It 
boosts uh, the response to vaccination. It prevents Alzheimer's disease. It prevents a bunch of kinds of cancer. Uh, it increase, increases uh, um, uh, muscle coordination. There's just a huge litany of things. And I'm as skeptical as anyone about if things work in mice, they're going to work in people. We know that there have been over 300 Alzheimer's treatments that worked in mice that haven't worked in people. None of them has worked in people yet. What makes me so optimistic about rapamycin is one of the first studies that came out showed that if you gave a mouse rapamycin for a few weeks and then stopped it and then gave mice a flu injection, that they responded to that injection as well as if they were young. And if you gave this to old mice, they responded as if they were young. Now, that's the kind of study that I thought, well, that's very interesting, but it's a mouse, and a mouse's immune system, quite a bit different than a human's. Turns out they did very similar experiment in people and got exactly the same result. So to me, that suggests there may be some key things. Now, rapamycin, unlike metformin, has a very specific target. In fact, it, uh, it's it got a target called uh, mTOR, mTOR yeah. yeah, which stands for target of rapamycin. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, to me, that's something that really deserves a, a lot of serious look. And in fact, there is a lot of work going on on either rapamycin itself or various rapalogs, as they call them, various close chemical relatives of, of rapamycin. So and, you, you mentioned rapamycin is used as an immunosuppressant in people who have or have had organ transplants. This is the most common use, right? And you just mentioned that in mice and also in humans, that if you give them a vaccine, there's a better response. So that sounds like an, um, like a, an increased or better immune function. Yes. Even it, though it's used as an immune suppressant. So it's going in both directions here. Well. Can you have? Yes and no. Uh, first of all, this points out the complexity of the immune system for starters. But also. <laughs> Most immunologists now would not call rapamycin an immunosuppressant. What rapamycin is, is part of an immunosuppressive cocktail that people get when they've to, to prevent rejection. So by itself, it's complex. It's, immunologists are calling it now an immunomodulator. Okay, that's and, what I was going to ask, this modulating concept of maybe it increases some things and decreases others. Exactly, exactly. And so for things like, like flu vaccines, I mean, I think probably within a few years, this will be standard because, as you know, uh, despite all the public service announcements every every year about about people getting their flu shots, older people are less likely to be protected because their immune system doesn't respond. Well, and as well. we speak, there is this coronavirus going on in China that exactly, right, exactly. could put po lots of the population at risk. Exactly. So one of the things that they found in the in in the uh, rapamycin studies with flu viruses is not only did it allow the virus the vaccine to work better did it stimulate the immune system so the vaccine worked better but it actually made the coverage of the vaccine broader so it was good you were getting protections against strains of the flu that were not actually in the vaccine so this is the kind of thing that that makes me think that we're that we're really on to some stuff here in the biology of aging. Interesting. But this is an important part of it, right? Because if we find some stuff that that fixes everything else but makes us 
drop dead the next time there's a the flu epidemic, that will not be uh, an outcome that we really uh, want to deal with. Yeah, there's a ton of variables here. No kidding. Yeah. So our, I had mentioned metformin and rapamycin. Are there others that come up for you that um, are in senolytics or are, are there other things? Yeah, the senolytics, the senolytics are really interesting. There, there are other drugs. There's a drug called acarbose. There's another drug that's 17-alpha estradiol, not the beta, not the feminizing estradiol, but alpha. All of these things have shown a lot of promise in mice. These things have not yet really made their way to people. Um, one interesting thing, there's two interesting things that, that your listeners might might not realize that we've we that have been huge surprises in the last few years in aging research. One thing is that a lot of the therapies that we're developing seem to be virtually as effective if they're started late in life as if they're started early in life. Interesting. And the original rapamycin paper, this was started on mice that were the equivalent of about sixty years old in human terms. So you're saying there's some hope. I'm saying there is some hope, and, and, and I think nobody suspected that. In fact, no. the, you know, the people that did that study, if they had asked me, they didn't do that on purpose. This was scientific serendipity. They, they, they were having a tough time. They put the rapamycin in the food, and they were having a tough time getting it to be stable in the food. And they'd set aside these mice, and while they were working on getting it into the food, the mice were getting older and older and older, and when they figured it out, the mice were this 60-year-old human equivalent, and they had to decide, do we just do it on those mice or do we get rid of those mice and start with a group of young ones? And if they'd asked me, I would have told them, get rid of the mice. It's too late to do them any good. Uh, fortunately for them, they didn't ask me, and uh, they went ahead, and it turns out that, that it had a dramatic effect, and they wow. lived about 30% longer from the time that they started getting the drug than the animals that didn't. So and in fact, subsequent studies have started it even later. Interesting. And, and still been effective. Yes. Just wow. still and so almost effective. Are and you nobody, on rapamycin? I, no, 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 no. I'm not a mouse. If I were a mouse, I would be on rapamycin. I want to wait till the data are in. The other huge surprise uh, comes out of the 17-alpha estradiol work is that of the half a dozen drugs that we know about that seem to have this effect in mice, more than half of them only work in one sex. And again, that was something that nobody suspected. It was a huge surprise. And we're just start starting to look into how that works because wouldn't it be interesting if the first sort of cut of personalized medicine were you know, men-specific and women-specific right. medicine? The mouse work suggests to us that at least in terms of aging, that it might turn be. out to be exactly the case. And so was it overwhelmingly that women were helped more by these interventions or that, that – or female mice, not women, but – female mice or male mice were helped more or less across the board, or was it a, a pretty even distribution of this helped ma male mice and this helped female mice? It, mostly the effect was on male mice. And it wasn't that, like in rapamycin, it depends on the dose. At certain doses of rapamycin, female mice are helped more than male mice, and at other doses, male mice are helped more. But in every case, both both seem to be helped. But in these drugs, there seems to be no effect at all on aging in one sex and a big effect in the other sex. And that was what was so surprising. And that's what 
you know, a bunch of us are now working trying to figure out what the meaning of that is. How fascinating. So it sounds like that's one of the big uh, sort of things on the horizon. If you had, you're a researcher in a lab, you need funding. So say you had all of the funding in the world and you could answer one question, what would it be? That is a very good question. Let me just focus on people. So I've said before that, and everybody knows this, that women live longer than men, and it happens everywhere and in pretty much every historical time period that we know about. But the other half of that is that in later life, women and men have different degrees of health, and men, the ones that are still alive, tend to be healthier than women. So it's called the the mortality morbidity paradox. Yeah. Women live longer, but later in life, they're less healthy. What I would like to do is address the question, could we make men live as long as women and can we keep women alive as in as healthy a state as men? That would be, that would be the answer to a question I'd very much like to have. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll think about how to, how to get you a funding and how to design that study. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Dr. Austin, it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your precious time, valuable time. And we will be on the lookout for that book. Can you say the title one more time? Methuselah Zoo, The Natural History of Exceptional Longevity, MIT Press. And when will that be out? Uh, I hope it will be out about a year from the fall. Oh, okay, okay. So we got a little bit of time. You um, got some time. <laughs> we can't pre-order on Amazon yet. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. All right. And then if people want to learn more about what you're up to, where can they find out? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is Stephen Austad, one word, S-T-E-V-E-N-A-U-S-T-A-D dot com. And uh, I try to keep what I'm doing and what I'm working on and, and my latest writing all on that website. Updated. And then are you publishing um, consistently any columns yes. right now? Uh, I'm, I'm publishing a bi-monthly column in Next Avenue, the Public Broadcasting's Next Avenue health blog. I just had one come out on these new clocks, by the way. Great, great, great. Good, good. Well, thank you so much again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I've learned so much from you today. And uh, well, I can't well, thank you. Them. You asked such wonderful questions. It's been a joy to talk to you as well. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Stephen Austin. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST60. If you have questions about this content, please go leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast and we'll work to get those answered by Stephen on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. See you next time.